Listen up. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the podcast participants and not to any participant's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. You know, for fun. So lighten up and enjoy. Hi, Stomping Jen. Hey. How you doing? I'm okay. It's really nice to see you. Oh, so nice to see sitting you. Sitting over there. <laughs> in my chair. In your chair. In your spot. In my... Yeah. Hey. Do you like it a lot? I do. You're rhyming. Uh-huh. God, you're so awesome. Um, <laughs> do you know who our guest is this week? I don't. Tell me all about yep. it. It's John Shire, who... Hails from our area of the world in Western Massachusetts, Northampton, Massachusetts. Um, John has taught writing and communications for about 30 years at Asnuntuck Community College in Enfield, Connecticut, where he also serves as editor and faculty advisor for Freshwater Literary Journal. He writes a monthly column on current events uh, for the Daily Hampshire Gazette. Gazette. That's one of our local papers. I read that every day. You do? Yep. I check in online every day until my free number You only of get three free articles. Four. Four. <laughs> until those run out. Um, but I do look at it every oh, day look, to okay. see the headlines I and see. stuff. Yep. I see. Um, John is also a writer of books, um, which include memoir, fiction, poetry, essays, political satire, and photography. And his most recent book, um, which I am working my way through now, I uh, started reading it, is called Stumbling Through Adulthood. And this is a collection of linked stories. Cool. I love linking, by the way. You know, like the um, multiverse, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, where the movies are linked and the stories have characters that appear and other stories. I love that. I love linking. Okay. I'm a big fan of Let's it. Let's talk to John yeah, about it. we're going to talk that. to John about it, okay? Okay. All right. Um, here we go. The Soft Serve Podcast. Creamy, delicious ideas without the creepy truck. Stomping Jen. We're back on the podcast again. How you doing? I'm okay. Good. Um, John, how are you? I'm, I'm doing great. It's a shame this isn't a video podcast because you guys are so cute together. Oh, thank you. <laughs> there's, there's a little flirty thing going on. It's it's really great. Aww. Something happens when we when we start rolling tape on these things. I just I get a little frisky. <laughs> now you stay over there, Stomping Jen. Um, John, thank you for joining us. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time to um, talk to us. How have you been? Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me here. I, I've been great. Life is great. Yeah. And uh, thank you for sharing um, your 
book with us, um, stumbling um, through adulthood. Um, as I mentioned, I'm I'm working my way through a lot of those stories, and um, definitely have some questions for you about a couple of those stories. Um, but I wanted to thank you for sharing it with us. I'm really enjoying it, and I want to tell our listeners. Um, Pick up this book. Um, it's John's most recent book. And also, I'm going to have links in the show notes to a lot of the stuff we're talking about. Um, John's website, uh, John's Facebook page, uh, his Twitter account. And also, there's a kind of a political um, Facebook page that John has as well. I'll have a, a link to that as well, too. So, um, to our listeners, definitely go check all that stuff out. You know, you can hit the pause button and you can go off and look at any of those things as we're talking about them. So I just wanted to um, mention that. Um, John, I kind of wanted I wanted to start um, as I was going through and looking at some of the books that you've published. I kind of zeroed in on your memoir, um, which is called Growing Up Mostly Normal in the Middle of Nowhere. I didn't get a chance to read it, but I was struck by... Um, kind of the opening sentence, which one of the reviews mentions, I'm just going to quote it. It was, I wasn't kidnapped as a child, never abused, abandoned, beaten, or sold to the highest bidder. Um, and I was thinking to myself, in an, in a, we live in an era where abuse kind of sells in a lot of memoirs that I've read or heard about kind of have their foundations in uh, horrible upbringings and, you know, like stories of salacious abuse. And talk to us a little bit about, about maybe your upbringing and choosing to write like a positive memoir. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I don't get to talk about that book nearly as much as I used to. Uh, I wrote it in the early 2000s and it came out, I think in 2005 and even more so than now, back then, it seemed like any memoir that was published was about something crazy that happened to somebody, literally crazy. Um, and I don't mean to make light of any of those circumstances, but uh, the abuse memoir was very big. Uh, Augustine Burroughs, Running With Scissors, was yeah. kind of the... And, and, you know, many of these are really wonderful books, but many of them are uh, just, just horrible in different ways and just like... Uh, almost celebrating the suffering that people went through. Um, but, uh, and when I was trying to get that book published, I was trying to get an agent. And, and that's something I gave up on a long time ago. But while I was trying to get an agent, I got so many replies from agents when I would send a sample of the book, they would say, this is really great. This is wonderfully written. And it's, it's really uh, captivating. And it would never sell because you weren't abused. You, you're not <laughs> oh, a celebrity. <laughs> And, and that, you know, that sort of wore on me after a while. But uh, I, I realized you can have a writing career uh, as such without necessarily having an agent. Um, and, and so I, I did. I wrote a very positive memoir. Um, I grew up on a little farm in Pennsylvania, uh, Bedford County, Pennsylvania, which is kind of north of Cumberland, Maryland. That's sort of part of the joke. It's it's almost impossible to tell where it is without describing what it's not. Uh, it's so far in the middle of nowhere. And it was a really great place to grow up. Uh, the values that uh, were instilled in me by growing up on a little farm, uh, a lot of family around, you know, we lived in a house that my grandmother lived with us. 
Uh, I had, I grew up with three sisters and then I had two older brothers who were already out of the house. Uh, grew up on a little farm, literally was, was throwing hay bales before I could lift hay bales, uh, when hay bales were bigger than I was. And so I, I learned the value of hard work. Uh, I learned the, the value of, uh, things that aren't purchased with money. I learned the value of, uh, uh, how connections with people can be some of the most important things in your life. And, you know, for a while, those values, I, I sort of lost them in a way because uh, as I grew older and did well in college and then went to graduate school and did reasonably well and then started teaching and had an academic career, sometimes people would say, so where are you from? And I just say Pennsylvania. And I wouldn't go into any greater detail and let them think either Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, because that's usually what people think of. Uh, but, but after a while, I realized that uh, where I grew up, this rural upbringing was in no way anything to be ashamed of because the values that I developed as an adult really came from those values that were, uh, were a big part of my life as a child. And then as a young adult, and so I sort of embraced that much more than I did before. Um, and, you know, as as time has gone on, um, one thing that's been very awkward is that the, the county that I grew up in, Bedford County, Pennsylvania, um, they, they voted something like 70 percent for Trump in both elections. And uh, it's it's really difficult connecting, you know, Facebook has been wonderful because I've connected with people from my past, but it's been really difficult connecting with people who believe that I'm some kind of devil worshiping socialist, horrible person, because I think it would be nice if, if people didn't starve. I think it would be nice if migrants weren't kidnapped and put on a plane and, and sent somewhere without their actual consent. Um, I think it would be nice if really wealthy people paid their fair and share in taxes. I mean, those are the kind of values that I grew up with, that that those things are real liberal values that were instilled in me when I was younger. And the fact that where I grew up is now, you know, they, they sort of worship this yeah. criminal, awful person who somehow accidentally became president. Uh, it, it really makes me sad, Are you, but it's, it's a positive upbringing. And that, that, that's really great to hear. Are you able to connect with those old, I don't know what to call them, old friends, old acquaintances, and like on a, on a, on a level where you can avoid talking about politics and is, is there, is there still some value in that for you? Like hoping maybe, there's still something you can connect to there with those people. Yes and no. Um, the ones who haven't unfriended me on Facebook mm -hmm. or the ones that I haven't unfriended because I, it takes a lot for me to unfriend someone. You know, if somebody tells me I, I want to murder babies as soon as they're born. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I'll explain my position, but if you stick to that position, I'm sorry, I'm unfriending you. And people who repeatedly put things like that on uh, comments on my Facebook page. But generally people unfriended me if, if I just did a basic fact check on things. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've lost a lot of people I grew up with that way. Um, but a few have, have hung around and I still can connect with them and have semi-reasonable discussions. Um, it, it's valuable. It's worthwhile. I, I 
I like to see what they're thinking and try to understand. I have a lot of empathy for for their lives, and I, I want to. Can and I, I think they're reasonably smart people. I don't yeah. think they're stupid. I, I think they're exposed to a lot of propaganda that is designed specifically to make them think things that aren't true. And I try to help them out with that. And, you know, sometimes it, it works and sometimes it doesn't. And, uh, but occasionally I still do connect with people. We connect about things that have nothing to do with politics. You know, I, I post something about, um, I don't know, uh, building, building a little patio near our house. I do a lot. I did a lot, particularly this summer, I did a lot of work around our house and I'll post a picture of this patio that I built and they've been kind of, propagandized into believing that people with liberal politics don't do any work. Right. And that's just crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And they see me working hard and working with my hands and they, th- and they find out that I own a home and, and they think, wow, maybe he's not so different after all, even if he is somebody who thinks Joe Biden still actually can cognitively put a sentence together. Yeah. Even if he is somebody who thinks Barack Obama wasn't actually a terrorist. Yeah. Um, so th- it, it is worth it. It's worth it to hold on as much as possible and as long as I can. And, and, you know, I went to college in West Virginia and the same kind of thing applies. A lot of my friends in college uh, think that, that I'm a horrible devil worshiping person, which which is nice. I went to a nice church-related Methodist college, and uh, apparently that made me a, eventually like a liberal devil worshiper. I'm not sure how, but but there are more people from college who I, I held on to and kept that connection with, and and it's also just wonderful to find the the small percentage of people who are progressives and are liberals uh, with the back the same background that I have, and and that's always a wonderful, fun discovery to make as well. Yeah. What, why do you think, like, why, how did that happen? Like, do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, I'm, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm not really like being very articulate right now, but like, I'm trying to reconcile <laughs> what you're saying about the values that you grew up with and how uh, that is something you cherish. And then um, somehow the propaganda has quote unquote worked on, 70% of your county that you grew up in and like yeah. how does that happen like how did how did how did the messaging get so uh fine tuned and what is it resonating with people with those values yeah well i don't think you're being inarticulate about that at all because there are times i lay awake at night and and think that exact thought like why how and the closest I've come up with is it's kind of a combination of things. Some of it is economic. Uh, these are people who are, you know, there were lots of farmers, uh, small farmers, people who worked in in small industry where their jobs have pretty much disappeared or been really cut back. Um, there are people who were coal miners whose family have a long history with coal mining. Um, and they think that global warming is a myth because Everybody connected with the coal mines have told them, oh, they're they're just trying to take our jobs away. So there's the economic part of it. And, you know, I grew up really poor. Uh, Our family was very poor. My dad was a construction steam fitter uh, and a a plumber, basically. And then he was disabled from uh, a series of heart attacks. And he just kind of farmed a little bit where I grew up. Um, And and we made do and, and got by. 
But those economic disadvantages are pretty common. Everybody I knew had uh, had money troubles. Um, and I think that that sort of situation makes them right to be taken advantage of by the propaganda because somebody will point their finger and say, the reason that you're poor is because Barack Obama is wearing a suit and tie. Right. Uh, the reason that you're poor is because welfare people in the cities, you know, quote unquote, welfare people mm -hmm. uh, are getting what you're supposed to be getting. And, you know, 99.9% of the people I grew up with were, were white. And so there really is an element of not always like conscious racism, but subconscious racism. If, if they've literally never met a black person and all they see of black people is somebody getting arrested on the news, um, they tend to fall into a really narrow set of beliefs and that gets taken advantage of. And then, you know, I feel bad about this, but there's also the religious element. Um, everybody, even if they cuss all the time, even if they're cheating on their taxes and cheating on their spouses, they they come back to religion mm -hmm. and um, they they have been taught that uh, they can be forgiven for anything. It doesn't matter what you do as long as you go to church on Sunday and confess your sins. Uh, they've been taught to believe in faith instead of facts. Yeah, and you know, faith is a great thing. Faith is wonderful, but uh, faith is not going to solve the climate crisis. Faith is not going to balance a budget. Faith is not going to help people who are poor get jobs. So that's a big part of it. And then, of course, guns. You know, I grew up in a household where uh, my dad hunted. I, I hunted as a teenager. Everybody had a closet full of rifles, um, and it's and you know I think my dad was really good at, at keeping it in perspective because he never believed like government people were coming to take his guns, right? But there were people then who believed that, and certainly there are people now who believe that, and so I think all of those factors together uh, have, have contributed to that. Yeah. yeah, and I think that I think it's really interesting. In 2012, you put out a book called um, "Tales of a Real American Liberal," where you talked about some of this stuff um, about how facts, respectful debate, and common sense were disappearing from our political discourse. And that's you know almost thirteen, almost um, help me do the math, Tom Jen, eleven years ago. Now yeah. we're we're <laughs> we're sitting here in 2022, and I'm going to guess, John, you're going to tell us it hasn't gotten any better. <laughs> <laughs> no, it has not gotten better. Yeah. Uh, well, you know that's it, it, I go back and forth because at heart I'm I'm a realist, and I think there's some optimism in every realist. Um, some things have not gotten better, but some things have, I mean, 11 years ago, if you took a poll on, uh, is marriage equality, something you would accept a, a large percentage of people would have said no. Um, and now the majority of people are perfectly fine with marriage equality and, yeah. you know, uh, there's no such thing really as gay marriage anymore. It's right. just marriage, you right. know, if if your two guy friends want to get married, they're getting married. They're not getting gay married. So even our right. language has changed. Yeah, that's a good point. But yeah, no, that's a that's a really great point. I mean, I think the thing that scares me, right, is there's a fairly uh, determined 
segment of our elected officials who want to undo that progress, right? Oh, God, yes. Yeah. And and like, did you see Donald Trump coming in 2012 (laughs) when you were like thinking serious, like really seriously about politics and discourse and like, you know, could, did you see, did you see things going in this direction? No. Yeah. uh, I didn't. Uh, You know, when, when he ran, I thought, you know, the first debate, he's going to get laughed out of there uh, yeah. because he has no idea what he's talking about. That became, you know, as they say, that was a feature and not a bug. Right. Having no idea what you're talking about was appealing. Yeah, He tells it like it is. He's right. one of us. I mean, they're talking about this guy who sits on gold toilets and saying mm-hmm. he's one of us. Yeah. I, as soon as that first debate, uh, the Republican debate leading up to 2016 happened, and he did not go to like 1% in the polls. He actually climbed in the polls. I just said, you know, it's all over. He's going to get the nomination. Yeah. I, I didn't think he was going to win. Frankly, he didn't win. He lost the popular vote. Uh, right. But the Electoral College, which which I tend to call an affirmative action program for unqualified Republican presidential candidates. <laughs> That's right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's the the only reason he got into office. And throughout his term in office, his uh, his popularity was underwater. It was under 50 percent. So people who talk about, you know, Trump representing America, he doesn't. He he represents, like you said, a a small minority of people. Uh, There's always going to be 20 to 30 percent of people who don't like chocolate or who think that um I, i'm i'm trying to come up with a good example like think of one of the most unpopular things you can think of and there's going to be 20 25 30 percent of people who think yeah that's a good idea Dirt, yeah. durian um, durian fruit <laughs> yeah. nobody thinks durian fruit is a good idea <laughs> no there's a small percentage of people who love durian fruit. very yes. small yes. um trump you know, trump is the durian fruit of presidents <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that, go ahead. <laughs> that works. That works. Yeah. So, you know, I even though he quote unquote won, he never had a real popular mandate. Yeah. And and Republicans have some control in Congress only because of things like uh, gerrymandered redistricting, yeah. only because the Senate represents with Republicans represent millions fewer people than Democrats represent, even in a 50-50 Senate. So yeah, all of these weird constructs that that right now favor Republicans uh, brought us Trump and brought us Mitch McConnell being Senate Majority Leader for a long time, John Boehner being the leader in the House for a long time. Um, it may turn out that the Republicans take back Congress this time, not because their ideas are popular, but because people love to vote out whoever they don't think is doing exactly what they want. You know, uh, whether you love Joe Biden or hate Joe Biden, he's done a million really good things. Yeah, he does. Sure. Yeah, he has. Yes. He, he's not a great public speaker and he stumbles over his words now and then. And he says some goofy things and he's old, but he's been a really effective president. And the the Democrats in Congress have done really, really good things for everyday Americans. What did Trump and the Republican Congress do? They, They gave a tax cut that helped millionaires and billionaires and corporations way more than everybody else. 
Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. The thing. Thanks. Thanks for getting me on this. <laughs> yeah. Sure. No. No. I, I had. You know. I. This was something I definitely wanted to talk to you about. I mean, one of the things I struggle with is I in a, to understand is, um, how cruelty has become part of in the brand of the this mega republicanism right yeah. like i i what are your thoughts on that like is there is there something in us that responds to cruelty like it, it's it baffles me like i i i'm repulsed by it but clearly there are some people who who find it exhilarating or like i just what are your yeah. thoughts on this that's that's a really good question, a really important question. Um, Charles Blow, who's a really good political writer, had an essay some years ago that said basically the cruelty is the point. You know, it's it's why is Trump so cruel? It's not by accident. Uh, he has zeroed in on mobilizing that 20, 25, 30 percent of people as strongly as possible by appealing to their the worst aspect of their nature, sort of the opposite of what Abraham Lincoln said yeah. when he talked about the better, better angels of our nature. Uh, a Shakespearean quote is probably better for people who appeal, Trump appeals to, um, uh, what is it? Hell is empty and all the devils are here. Yeah. He brings out all the demons inside us and, and makes it acceptable. He can stand up in front of the United States of America and talk about Mexico sending rapists to the United States. Some just horrible thing yeah. that is A, not true, and B, just completely cruel and mean. Um, and people will hear that and it'll bring out the worst aspects of their personality, bring out their fear, their anger, their sense of being dispossessed in our society. Uh, every time they thought somebody was smarter than them or wealthier than them, it'll bring out that defensiveness and that anxiety. And, and he's weaponized that. And he got that 25, 30% of people, he got a really high percentage of them to vote, while the 70 or more percent of people who don't like what he does just kind of became apathetic and didn't vote in 2016. And, and that's why he won then, quote unquote, won. Uh, and that's why he actually got closer than anybody thought he could have in 2020. Uh, because even though people were energized to vote against him, they weren't necessarily energized to vote for Joe Biden. Um, and so it was I think it was a 4.5% win. I can't remember right now, but it, it, you know, in any sane society, he would lose 70, 30, he'd lose yeah. 80, 20. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he plays into that, that cruelty that, that people have. And it often comes from fear. It often comes from anxiety. Uh, it comes from anger. Um, it, it comes from the propaganda that somebody's getting something that you're not, uh, yeah, my in my hope. So we're we're. I'm just going to let folks know we're recording this sometime ahead of the election. And my sincere hope is that when you're listening to this, um, um, the the Democrats have at least held on to the Senate. Um, that that is what I hope. It, it looks like it might be going in that direction. I hope it bears bears out to be that way. Um, 
and then we'll we'll have to take it from there. If if not, you can you can find me um, running <laughs> through the running through the woods <laughs> towards the Northlands, folks. So um, I don't like the cold. So yeah, you I know. Can go by All right, you go south, I'll go north. Okay. And then eventually we'll meet somewhere. Um, if we hemisphere. follow a straight line, yes. Yeah, okay. um, all right, John. I want to <laughs> thank you for talking about um, um, this important topic with us. Uh, you know, the political discourse and politics. I might have another question for you a little bit later about that, but I want to rewind a little bit um, and 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 talk. Just talk to us a little bit about how you became a writer. I'm really interested about what what your journey was towards um, being a writer. That's kind of a funny story in a lot of ways because. Um, I, I don't know exactly why, but even as a little kid, I thought I could be a writer. I, I, I It wasn't like I didn't have some English teacher who said you could do this. I didn't have some author who I thought was unbelievably wonderful when I was a child. Um, it, it was basically that that I just sort of lived in my head a lot. You know, I was an introverted kid growing up on a farm. I had a lot of time by myself. Uh you know, my, my recreation was to take a 10 mile walk through the woods. Um, and so I spent a lot of time just in my own interior. And I think that's what a lot of writers do because they begin by telling stories to themselves, sometimes about what's happening in their lives, but often about what they wish would happen in their lives. Um, and so I did a lot of sort of wish fulfillment fiction type creating in my mind. And then, um, in college, I did a little bit of writing. And then my, my senior year in college, I took a course in the short story. Hmm. And I read a bunch of classic short stories and a bunch of contemporary ones that I'd never read before. And something in me just clicked and said, this is something I really, really like. You know, I'd, I'd read a lot of novels. I'd read science fiction. Um, I'd read a lot of poetry in college and graduate school. But something about short stories always connected with me. And so I kept trying to write short stories. And even the memoir that I wrote, uh, Growing Up Mostly Normal in the Middle of Nowhere, which was probably my first real, like, solid publication, uh, it was composed of factual stories, but they were mostly short stories kind of interwoven, both about what was happening to me at that point in my life and remembering things that happened to me when I was a kid. Um, and then, you know, just I, I read and devoured as much uh, literature as I could. I read a ton of memoirs and most memoirs are written sort of in a serialized way where there are a lot of connected short stories about people's lives. Uh, and I started reading actual short stories and, uh, you know, I was reading uh, people, people who wrote both fiction and nonfiction, like David Sedaris. Yeah. Just reading David Sedaris. He has this fantastic essay called Big Boy. And it's about going to a party at a friend's house and he goes to use the restroom and there's something in the toilet that <laughs> someone has forgotten to flush. Oh, no. And the whole essay is about, oh my God, what do I do? And reading that essay, just something exploded in my mind that said, you can write about everyday life. You can write about things that happen to you, things that happen to people you know. Uh, you don't have to like create literature that's about godlike people or crazy situations. Just life in general is a great source for literature. And so that really jump-started 
my, my life as a writer, as an adult, you know, in my early forties, I really got to where instead of just thinking about writing, which, you know, I did a lot of writing before that, but I felt like I thought about writing a lot more, something about being in my forties, maybe it was the maturity, maybe it was having an established career by that point, but I was able to focus on actually doing the writing, you know, and, and like a lot of writers say, how do you become a writer? Well, you write. And I hadn't done that as much as I could have, but I really started doing that. And then once I had things down on paper, I could work with them. You know, Anne Lamott is wonderful because she says we all, the best thing about writing is to, to write shitty first drafts. And (laughs) once you have those down on paper, then you can make something good out of them. And that's literally the only time I ever swear to my students when I'm talking <laughs> about writing yeah. is when I talk about shitty first drafts. Do you, um, do you, um, do you write on a typewriter, on a computer? Do you write by hand? Uh, 99.9% of the time on the little laptop that's sitting in front of me right now. Um, the, the way people carry their phone around, I carry my laptop around. It's with me probably 99% of my, my waking life. I wake up in the morning at five o'clock and open my laptop. I do an hour or two of, of work and writing on my laptop when I go to bed. Um, so it's, it's all on there and I back up constantly (laughs) because if my laptops over the years have fallen apart because of heavy use Mm -hmm. and I've managed not to lose much, but I've gotten to the point where I almost never handwrite anything. Uh, You know, I'll write little notes on things. Like I wrote some notes for being on this podcast today. I wrote down Jen and Brad, (laughs) so I wouldn't forget your names, (laughs) but I do so much of my writing right on the laptop. Yeah, it sounds like you don't have um, a specific like place you write in. I know I know some people we've talked to have said, you know, I wake up in the morning, I, I go down to my office, and that's where I write. It sounds like you might be comfortable um, because you have the laptop with you writing almost anywhere. Yeah, it's become kind of an immersive thing. Like wherever I am, uh, I can immerse myself in my writing. And, you know, it's... The one thing I, I, you know, I can't wait to retire. I've, I'm uh, 61 years old. I have something like five to 10 years before I retire and I love my job. But uh, once I retire, instead of spending 25% of my focus on writing and 75% on the classes that I'm teaching and the other things, committee meetings and the projects and all that stuff, then I can focus like most of my energies on writing. And I just can't wait for that. But I am able to immerse myself if I have half an hour, if I have 15 minutes, those wonderful times when I have two or three hours, when I have a day or two, when I don't have to do anything for my 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 day job. I used to say, uh, I'm the only person I know who has a day job teaching night classes. <laughs> but I can I can immerse myself in the writing for short periods of time and over the course of a day and a week, uh, a month and a year, I've put a lot of hours into writing. Have you taught, um, you mentioned that you teach night classes. Have you taught day classes? And is there a difference in, in, in um, teaching during those two times a day? Do you prefer one over the other? Well, there used to be. Uh, when I first started teaching at Nuntuck Community College uh, 30 years ago, that's kind of hard to imagine, but I taught mostly night classes. And 
it was great because I was fairly young and I had the energy to do it. Um, and in the night classes, if there were 25 people, 22 of them were older than I was at the time, were in their 30s and 40s. And two or three were traditional age college students, like 18, 19, 20 years old. And it was wonderful to have to, to teach writing and literature to people who had rich life experiences at that point. Yeah. Um, people would write essays about giving birth. People would write essays about the death of their parents, things that at that time I hadn't experienced yet. Uh, and so they had this rich life experience to draw on. Um, as time went on, you know, community colleges have changed a little bit. They become more of a first choice for younger students. Yeah. And so uh, I haven't taught a night class in a while because uh, we don't teach it. We don't have as many as we used to because the demand isn't there, but also I'm, I'm getting older and, you know, nine o'clock, nine o'clock is the witching hour. <laughs> I used to teach classes that went until 10 at night and I don't know how I did that, but uh, I don't do as many night classes, but uh, probably 80 to 90% of my students now are in that 18 to 24 year old range. So I'm teaching traditional age students again, yeah. which is, uh, it's interesting. Yeah. So as I was hearing you talk about your experiences teaching night classes, I, I had a, a memory of my own, like kind of just pop into my head. And when I was in the army and overseas, I, I took a couple of night classes and I just, I don't know. I just, I look back so fondly on, um, those those experiences and one of them was a creative writing class that I took with this teacher who was this like progressive expat right and I don't know why how, why or how they led him on to the base <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean there he was this was on the DMZ in South Korea and wow. you know and I just remember like um feeling like okay this is pretty awesome I'm here in the army and but Here's this guy who's, you know, exposing me to all this awesome writing and these cool ideas. And I think it's like one of the things that maybe prevented me from or, or kept me as a more uh, liberal minded, progressive thinker it was like having that lifeline in, you know, thrown to me in the army, that like intellectual like buoy that I could grasp yeah. onto and be like, wow, okay, you know, I don't have to like you know, I don't have to be like a military dude, <laughs> you know, like I can, I don't know. Anyways, it just popped into my mind. I just wanted to share I want that. To read that short story. I, I probably have it somewhere here. No, no military dude. Oh, military dude. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. would be great. I'd yeah. love to read that. Right. Um, but that's, you know, that's a really good point. I have a lot of students at the community college who are in the military or have recently been in the military and, you know, teaching online as well. I have students who are, literally overseas taking online classes. Um, and it, it is, it is a lifeline is a really good way to put it because uh, military life is, you know, no pun intended. It's very regimented. Oh, it's yeah. very black and white. You know, my dad talked about this when he was in the Navy, you knew exactly what you were doing at every minute. Uh, and when you didn't, you didn't really feel comfortable yeah. when you had to think for yourself. Sometimes you didn't feel comfortable. Um, and so the opening up your mind just through any college course is great, not just for people in the military, but for people who have been in really regimented lives forever, whether it's their job, whether it's their family upbringing. 
Um, a lot of times people think that college education like turns people liberal and it's indoctrination. Mm-hmm. No, it's just getting people to think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I never tell people skills. what to think. Yeah. I, I like to talk to them about how to think, yeah. how to open your mind and look at different aspects of what's happening in your experience and, and what you're seeing and feeling and understanding about the world. And, you know, that's not indoctrination. That's the opposite of indoctrination. Indoctrination is saying, no, don't open your mind. Here's how it is. And there's no other way to think about it. Yeah. And, and I'll just say too, like the, the people who were um, my superiors, you know, in the military, were, they were all very supportive. They, you know, they, they encouraged me to, to take those classes and stuff. So, I mean, they're like, fortunately, I don't know if it was just where I was, there was a culture that was like very encouraging of people to go and, and take classes and use that benefit that was available to us. Um, so John, I wanted to talk just a little bit about your, um, your 2021 book. We mentioned it at the beginning, uh, stumbling through adulthood link stories. Um, as I mentioned, I've been, I've been working my way through the stories. I'm, I'm not as far as I'd like to be, um, but one thing, one thing I just, I want to talk about one of the stories. It's kind of in, in the first part of the book. Um, it, it's in the, the story you wrote called Six Questions. Um, and there's this character, Bobby. Um, this is just my interpretation. So I'm going to tell you what you wrote about. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm curious. Yeah. Um, so, um, so there's this character, Bobby, and it like follows him at different points in his life. Right. And it, in my what I took away from it, it's um, it's his relationship and like struggle with smoking in his life over this over these periods of time, um, and um, I don't want to spoil it for people, but he's left in this like really uncertain kind of morally ambiguous place with his relationship to smoking when he's an adult, mm. um, and you'd think he, you'd you'd think based on the experiences that preceded that he might be in a different place right and it and um and and I and I thought about that uncertainty that we find that character in at the end of the the story and struggling with and and I I've noticed that in a couple of the other stories that I read you know these the characters are left kind of in an uncertain place or struggling with that and I just wanted you to see if you could talk to us about um, creating these characters and then leaving them and us in this place, like wondering what's going to happen here (laughs) to this person. uh, Those are great observations. Uh, That story, it's kind of different from most of the stories because it does follow this character through several stages of his life. Uh, I think beginning in childhood and ending in reasonably young adulthood and people around him who are smoking and what effect that has on him. And it's partly autobiographical because my parents were smokers who then died of smoking-related illnesses uh, much younger than they should have. Um, And I was in a romantic relationship after, well, a long time ago with someone who smoked, and that comes up in the story as well. And... um, yeah, there's a lot of ambiguity and anxiety. You know, I loved my parents and I hated that they smoked. Yeah. Uh, I, I love this woman I was involved with, but I hated that she smoked. Um, 
so that kind of ambiguity, it, that, that's sort of a theme in a lot of the stories where people don't know exactly what they should be doing. They're, they're stumbling through adulthood, which is why it's called that. You know, I remember being, being a kid and thinking, I can't wait to be an adult where I know what everything means and I'll understand life and everything will be clear to me. And then you become an adult. And of course, none of it is clear. We're all making it up as we go along. Um, but that character experiences that through different phases of his life. Uh, all the characters in the book have similar situations where the only characters who are sure about things are sort of the villains in the book. They're the ones who we don't connect with and we don't relate to. And I think that's so much like real life, everyday life. I, I've gotten to the point where I'm not really sure about a lot of things in life, I'm always willing to explore them more and try to understand them more and to keep an open mind about things. Um, and I, I like to create fictional characters who do that as well. And interestingly, that character uh, comes back as Bob later on. Oh, good. He's not, he's not <laughs> childhood Bobby. And he works for an insurance company. Uh, and he's in a story called Risk Management, where he and part of why he's in insurance is that he knows there are things in life that are risky, like smoking. And that's sort of how he deals with it in a different way. And just to kind of give a, a preview of that story, um, occasionally in the book, there are little fantasy elements. You know, 90% of it is realistic, but there are some aliens. Um, yep. <laughs> and there's also, in this particular story with Bob, he opens up the bottom drawer of a file cabinet and there's a bear cub in there. That's just like, hi, what, what you doing? And he doesn't have any idea why there's a bear cub in the file cabinet. And he takes a risk related to that. So he kind of comes full circle in the sense that he's sure enough about his life that he's willing to take a risk and try something completely new. Was it, did you plan out how these characters would appear in the different stories or did that kind of happen organically? Like, <laughs> I'm really curious about that. That's, that's a great question because, uh, and the answer is a weirdly it's yes or and no, because for the most part, these were completely separate stories. Uh, maybe the first half of the book that I I was was stories, not the first half, but half of it in general, were separate stories. And then every once in a while, I'd be writing and I'd think, hey, this guy in the background here who's sort of a supporting character, that's this guy. That's a guy who was the main character in a previous story that I had written. And then I'd be working on another story and I'd think, I'd make a little mental note, hey, this woman back here who we just sort of mentioned a couple of times, she has her own story that she should be the center of. And later in the book, that happened. So some of it was conscious, especially after the, the collection started taking shape. Originally, they were all just completely separate short stories. And some of them actually began as, as memoir pieces where I was writing essays about my own experience. And then I fictionalized them and, and took them different places. Uh, and whenever you see a character named Jack, you know, Jack is a nickname for John. So he's oh, sort of okay. a form of me. 
Yeah. But yeah, and, and it's great that you mentioned the uh, the Marvel universe because I confess I don't watch many of those movies. And for a long time, I sort of struggled, like, how do I describe this book? Yeah. And then I was on the um, the Bill Newman show on WHMP oh, yeah. and I was describing it. And Monty Belmonte said, oh, it's the Marvel universe. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, thank you. That's a really good description of it. Yeah, I love that. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm embarrassed. I'm, I'm blanking on the main character's name in Are You Him, the the male character. Um, oh, Arthur. Arthur. Is he the same Arthur in One Bite? Is he in One Bite? I think there's a character. There I think one there's bite? one of the group of kids might be Arthur. I, anyways, like he's he's not meant to be, but I may <laughs> maybe have. he was. One thing about all these yeah. this matrix of all these names. Yeah. I, I had to search around. It reminds me of that episode of The Office where Michael Scott has written a screenplay and he's yeah. used the word Dwight for this right. idiot character. And yeah. one time he spelled it wrong. So it stayed in there when <laughs> yeah. he searched and replaced. Yeah. I, he, Arthur is not one of those characters. It's okay. possible. I accidentally named one of them Arthur. <laughs> I mean, and even if you didn't intend to, and even if I've got it mixed up, right? What I love about this, it has my curiosity peaked, right? Like it has my mind going about the possibilities, right? The wondering. And I don't know if I want you to answer. <laughs> so like I love, like, but I love, like, I, I mentioned how the uncertainty was, you know, made me feel, at least for that one character in um, Six Questions, um, Bobby made me feel a little uneasy. But like, I like, I like maybe wondering if some of these are the same people that we're seeing at different points and maybe not even entirely knowing for sure. I don't know. I like that as a reader. So um, I appreciate that. That's kind of what I was going for is creating those connections because there really aren't a lot of short story collections like that. There's some Olive Kittredge, uh, mm-hmm. by Elizabeth Strout, but that's held together by one main character, Olive, who's in every story. Uh, I, I haven't found many short story collections. You know, there are different links, but not ones that are sort of random, but repeating like these are. So yeah. maybe I've I've accidentally created a new form of the uh, a short novelish story yeah. thing. And, oh, go ahead. Well, when you were just saying that, like, it just reminds me of like... Um, Stephen King. I was just thinking that. Well, Go ahead. Of course, because you told me about this originally, about how he has a lot of connections back to uh, throughout all of his different novels. Yeah, uh, to certain mm. stories. Yeah, lines. yeah. John, I am a. I, in case you didn't know, I'm I'm 48. I'm a child of the the mid 70s and 80s, and I and I I devoured Stephen King. Right, and I I remember the first time as I was working my way through his novels, and I. And it struck me that we were dealing with characters that were appear- appearing in multiple books. And, uh, and yeah. some of them were just these, like, they, they weren't main characters. It was like this one main character in this one book walked past this other character. And I was like, oh, my God, that's this person <laughs> from that book. Oh, what is he doing? And it like it blew my mind open as a teenager. I was like, what? He can do that? Like, you know, I don't know. Anyways, it was that's what I love about this stuff. <laughs> me too i, th- I think yeah. that's great yeah yeah um i did want to ask you when we were talking about your memoir um and that question just popped into my mind um when you were writing your memoir did it uncover anything unexpected about yourself you know like did anything bubble up that maybe you weren't thinking might 
Well, a couple of things. And I think the big thing was just that connection between who I am as an adult and who I was as a kid, because for so many years, I, I sort of, yeah, I, I confess I was sort of ashamed of my childhood. I was ashamed of growing up in this hillbilly area, uh, growing up poor, um, in an uneducated family. I, I had some shame about that. And the big thing that it uncovered for me is that that was nothing to be ashamed of. And it was completely misdirected to feel shame or to think that my family situation was in any way a shortcoming in my life or that, you know, I was the product of geography being, uh, someone who grew up in a rural area was something that I overcame instead of something that helped shape me because it was a wonderful way to grow up. There were some problems, but there's problems in every way that, that people grow up. And there was more about my upbringing that was positive than that was anything in any way to be ashamed of. And, you know, looking back on it, I'm sort of ashamed that I was ashamed uh, so that's a big thing that brought up. Yeah. Another thing, a very concrete aspect of my life that it brought up is my grandmother, who we lived with it. We, we lived with her. We lived in the house that she had owned forever. And, you know, when I was a teenager, she was in her late eighties. And when she died, she was in her nineties. Um, and I didn't understand that she had lived an unbelievably rich life. Because for me, the entire time I knew her, she was this cranky old woman who walked around with a garden hoe as a cane <laughs> and would would uh, make uh, like hot slaw, which is a form of sort of a German dish that's like a hot form of coleslaw that I thought was horrible as a kid. She would make me pick dandelions out of the yard and she would cook them and we ate them. Huh. <laughs> I, I thought she was kind of crazy, but she was as rich and like intellectually interesting as anybody I've ever known in my life. And, and what really brought that home for me is that, you know, she used to tell these stories about things that happened in my mind a million years ago, but she was telling me the story once about this guy who she had talked about before, who was sort of a local legend sort of tall tales about him, how he would wrestle a bear and he would go away for five years and, and come back really rich and do all these things. Well, it turned out that when he was uh, sort of approaching middle age, he had a stroke. Hmm. And uh, my mother brought him into our home, the home that I grew up in long before I was born. And he lived there for 20 years, what? bedridden. Wow. And and in, in the bedroom that I grew up in, in literally in the bed that I slept in. So, of wow. course, I thought it was haunted. But- when I became an adult, I realized, you know, my grandmother was widowed when she was very young, like late thirties or so. Uh, and this was not just a random stranger she brought into her home. This was someone she had a beautiful adult connection to. Yeah. And when, when he was struck down, he wasn't killed like her husband was. He became someone who couldn't take care of himself. She loved him. She took care of him all those years. And I realized, you know, I'm getting goose flesh just thinking about it right now, that that she was involved with this man for many, many years. And then he became bedridden and she took care of him for decades. Wow. And that's an amazing life 
that I was, I grew up in the shadow of and didn't even know anything about it until I started putting it together as a grown up. That is amazing. So that was a huge realization for me. Yeah, I can relate to that in some way. Um, I don't know. My 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 grandmother was kind of a similar figure. I think you know, um, you know, her her teeth were sharpened on 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 the knives of the depression. You know, she's that type of mm. woman. And yeah. I remember interviewing her for a, a history project in high school. I sat down with her, hit hit record on the recorder and the most amazing stories came out and these were directly from her. I wish Mm. I still had the tapes. I mean, from describing to me how she, when she was in nursing school, she made several men compete for her favor by following her in a rowboat across a lake. Um, and she picked the strongest looking swimmer. Like she's telling me this stuff, like it was completely normal. Right. And like, um, and then like horror, everybody does that. Yeah. Like, and, and horrifyingly how like she used to go down to the, um, American concentration camps where they kept Japanese prisoners and throw rocks at them when she was younger. I was like, what you (laughs) did? What? She's like, well, it's just what we did back then. Yeah. I was oh like, my gosh. yeah, I was well, okay. Um, that's not, <laughs> let's, Sorry. let's have a conversation about why that's not, why that wasn't okay. But anyways, like, um, to your point though, like, you know, I think we often do, I mean, we, I think we take, um, older people like for granted and they don't have these incredibly rich, um, lived lives behind them. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Yeah. And, and it's funny too, because I have grandchildren now and, you know, I'll start telling a story and my nine-year-old granddaughter and my six-year-old grandson, I can see them sort of staring off into space and <laughs> zoning out a little bit. And I feel like saying, I did that too, but I found out yeah. my grandmother was really interesting. So you should listen <laughs> to my stories. I'm really interesting too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's a few years off. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, we always say like, you know, we're doing this, these, this podcast, right. And it's like for our children and whatever, it's like a little snippet into our lives for the future. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it you know, um, yeah, I mean, we have what now hundreds of hours of us talking to uh, to each other and people, and it is a little bit of a record. I mean, of 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 our of our lives over these period of years we've been doing it. So, yeah, yeah I'm um, John. That's a great I, way to think of it. Yeah, I mean, it occurred. Yeah, it occurred to me, and th- and and that that was what we were doing at some point, like kind of early on, because it was just us sitting down talking about our lives. I mean, the podcast has evolved over the years to where we've brought on interesting people like yourself. And, um, but still like, like I, like I've been doing, sometimes I'll jump in and share a story about something, you know, from my life. Um, so yeah. Um, John, but back to you, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned David Sedaris. Um, what other writers do you enjoy reading as a writer? Uh, it's it's interesting that you brought that up because I always blank out when people ask that question. <laughs> and so I actually, if you could see where I am right now, I have a bunch of books spread out so I could remember, you know, I've been reading a ton of short story writers and uh, there's a guy named Jacob Appel who has won pretty much every award you can win uh, for contests where people send their manuscripts in and the publishers pick the best one for their contest. There's probably about like 10 that are uh, the most prestigious one. He's won every single one. Uh, Jacob Appel. 
And his short stories are unbelievable because they're funny, they're deep. Sometimes like you'll read one story where you're laughing literally every page and then you turn to the next story and it's it's a a speculative fiction story about a time in the future where child abusers are allowed to pick one child out of the school every year what and the... then they won't they won't, they oh won't commit God. any other crimes uh and so it's this speculative fiction way of creating a situation that reduces child abuse and my reaction was the same as yours. It's like, oh, my God. And the author, Jacob Appel, is both he's a fiction writer, but he's also a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, and he has a law degree. Oh so God. he specializes in ethics. And Alex Jones hates him. So, you know, he's a good guy. Yeah, I'm going to pick up. A, um, I'm going to try to find this book and pick it up. When we're done. He's got a ton of books of short stories, uh, and and they're all really worth reading. You know, local author uh, Tom Papalardo, uh, he'd be a great candidate to be on your show. He has a new book of short stories called Satellites, and they're mostly set around here, and they're really wonderful. I just read one where this guy who's a local musician in present day keeps going to places and then walking like into the back room and suddenly it's 20 years earlier. Oh wow! And it's a time when he was blacked out drunk, but because he's blacked out drunk somewhere on the floor, he can walk through his own past at that time. So really interesting, like things I would never even think of myself. Um, I'm I'm reading an, an, an author named Robert Scottolaro, who specializes in flash fiction or microfiction stories that are 50 to 500 words. And, and I write a lot of those myself because I'm really busy. And so I've been working on particularly 100 word stories. I can write a draft of a hundred word story in like half an hour, and then I can tinker with it for the next seven or eight years. Um, but Robert Scottolaro is a really terrific writer of, uh, of microfiction, a writer I'd never heard of until recently named Gregory Wolos, W-O-L-O-S. I actually run a little small press uh, called Scantic Books, and he sent me a manuscript of short stories, and I started reading it and was like, oh my God, this is so good. And I immediately bought his other books of short stories and read them and just literally devoured them and said, please, can I publish your book? Uh, and so I was able to publish his newest book of, of short stories. And it's great to be involved that way uh, with helping to create literature as a publisher. Um, and I mentioned Elizabeth Strout, who wrote Olive Kittredge. And then the sequel to that is called Olive Again. Uh, if I were to recommend any book of short stories, it would be the first one, Olive Kittredge. Um, just amazing stories with characters who you don't necessarily like, but you are so captivated by, and some who you do like, and some who you like in some stories and can't stand in other stories. Um, so yeah, that's that's some people I've been reading. Cool. Um, let me ask you, um, do you think about writing and writers differently now that you're sort of occupying this space as a, as a writer? No, I've always like revered writers. I've always thought writers were like the coolest people on earth. I don't understand why 
you know, I, I might, well, I don't really do it much anymore after the pandemic, but if I went to a movie and there were only 30 people there, uh, I'd be like, wow, this is a disappointing crowd. But then you go to a reading that an author is doing. And if there are 30 people there, you're like, oh my God, this is the biggest crowd I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't understand why uh, writers are not more revered and, and followed. You know, people ask me, you know, now that you're a successful writer and I always laugh, <laughs> uh, you know, it depends on how you define success. I've, I've got some books out there and people read them occasionally, but then I, I have a reading myself at a library or at a bookstore. And sometimes the only people there are the people who are organizing it and the people I brought with me. So success has yeah. a different kind of definition, mm. but yeah, I've always thought of writers as like fascinating, amazing people. And if they're, you know, if they're like successful to the level of like somebody like Stephen King, or if they're, you know, trying to think of who would be an example, you know, I, I found a short story writer named Susan Jackson Rogers, who I had never heard of. And I started reading one of her stories online and then immediately bought her books and I'd never heard of her. And, you know, she's probably not someone who sells a million books, but I just think she's like the most amazing person on earth now that I'm reading her stories. Yeah. It's interesting. Sometimes, ah, oh man, this is like, I'm just thinking about that experience of connecting with a piece of writing in a writer, like the, the book that, that did it for me. Uh, was Cormac McCarthy's The Road, right? Mm. I had never read Cormac McCarthy before that book. I had heard about it, and I kind of was like into apocalypse stuff. But I wasn't prepared for like the raw power of the Mm. language on the page. Like, I still read it when I still, I, I try to read it every couple of years. And every time I go back to it, like it's just as powerful for me. Um, I find something new in it. And it's it's still a hard read for me because he doesn't really use punctuation in the way you yes. would you would think he might. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. I mean, he for me, and I'm just sharing. I guess I'm just sharing. Like for me, he 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 is somebody who, for me, like transcends into that like spiritual space when I read his stuff. Yeah. 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 That, that like, and that's I, such a special feeling. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I've started doing too that I really hadn't done before is I'm reading authors who are not from the United States. And in particular, hmm. I'm reading uh, short Asian short story writers. Uh, uh, Hiroki Miyamura, who wrote Men Without Women, that was the basis of the movie Drive, which won Best Foreign Film uh, like last year. I I do a lot of audiobooks and mm-hmm. I've listened to that book probably four times. Um, and I've gotten all of his other collections of short stories. There was a, a, a Korean uh, American short story writer whose name escapes me right now, but who wrote a book called Skinship, like kinship, but skinship. Yep. Uh, and, uh, you know, my wife read that for her book group. I got it on audio and, and listened to it back to back like three or four times. So I'm I'm trying to learn more. You know, I, I really like American writers in general, but I'm trying to reach out beyond that. I've been reading European writers, Asian writers, 
Uh, I just recently got a book by a, a, a Hispanic writer named uh, Fabiana Martinez, and it's called uh, 12 Random Words. Mm. And she writes uh, short stories based on different words, and she writes them in English and then writes them again in Spanish and in Portuguese and in French. And I don't read any of those languages, yeah. but uh, I've been reading the English versions of them. And it's, they're all set in Central and South America. And it's just different enough that it's it's another aspect of human experience that, that I can connect to by reading about it. Yeah. That, you know, I've, I've never been to Central or South America, but I feel like I can go there in a way through reading about that. Oh, and that's, that. that's pretty powerful. Yeah, I love that. Um, so we talked a little bit about how you're a teacher um, um, at um, Esnantuck Community College. Um, what have you learned about writing from teaching it? That is hard. Um, it's it's hard. It's hard to teach, and it's hard to do. Whether you're a first year college student who's trying to figure out, like when your sociology teacher asks you to write a research paper if you're trying to figure out how that works or whether you're a creative writing student who has like written poems and short stories for years and years, and, and you're trying to make them connect more with readers and, and connect more with who you are inside, whatever level you are as a writer, a student writer, it's really, really difficult. And teaching is really difficult in trying to help people connect with who they are and bring that out in writing. You know, there's a lot of sort of nuts and bolts kinds of things, you know, how to construct a paragraph, how to begin uh, a short story, how to bring research into an essay, really nuts and bolts things that, that are in some ways not that hard to teach. Mm -hmm. uh, they're often a little formulaic, uh, you can get the minimum of what makes someone do those things at an adequate level without a lot of trouble, but getting people to really dig deeper and connect with who they are inside through their writing to learn about the world around them through their writing, to connect with other human beings through their writing. That's hard. That's, that's an investment both as a teacher and on their part as a writer and it's when it works, it can be a wonderful thing. And, you know, I've had students, one really fun thing about being a little older is that I'll have students who've had my class 20, 30 years ago, and I'll randomly get an email or a friend request on Facebook. And they'll say, you know, learning from you about writing really changed my life and really wow. helped me uh, in ways that I never thought it would. And that's, that's pretty fulfilling. It yeah. doesn't happen often, but when it does, it's pretty wow. amazing. That's amazing. Um, do you have a favorite book on the craft of writing? Well, Stephen King's book on writing oh, is fantastic. So glad you said that. Uh, I, was, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was, I was projecting uh, through zoom. Well, how many books have been written about? Through, I know I've read, a, I have read a bunch of them. Oh, like, you have? like Strunk yeah. and whites and, um, but yeah. I just, I love Stephen King's book. I, I like that for two reasons. One, it's just really good practical stuff. I mean, yeah. here's this guy who puts millions of words together 
giving you practical uh, information about how to do that. And then, you know, the story of his own life as a writer that's interwoven in that book that, you know, he was writing a little family newspaper when he was a kid and the stories about, you know, having a little school desk over his knees while he worked in the laundry to write Carrie. And then the stories of how he got back into writing after that horrible car accident when he was hit by somebody. All of those, like the life of a writer that's connected with the technique is really fantastic. And along those same lines, uh, Anne Lamott's book, Bird by Bird, is another one like that where she connects her experiences with uh, childhood trauma, with drug addiction, uh, things that she's had happen in her life with her life as a writer and connecting those nuts and bolts ways of putting words together with living your life. I think those are the best books about writing. And I just love that phrase bird by bird. Yeah. Uh, when, when her brother waited until the day a paper was due in school where he was supposed to write about a bunch of different birds and he went to his dad and he says, stew today. What do I do? And his dad said, well, we'll just take it bird by bird and we'll get it done. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's exactly how writing is. You take it bird by bird. Yeah. Um, thank you for, thank you for describing, um, her book. And one thing I'm just thinking about Stephen King's book on writing that, that I got out of it was this, it was a lesson about like achieving, achieving your goals. Right. And, and, and that there has to be more to a practice than getting to some predetermined endpoint. Like he talks about how, he made it as like this incredibly successful writer, like had everything he had wanted in terms of material things. And he found himself like alone at his desk, like this lonely drunk who mm. literally couldn't remember writing one of his books. Like he yeah. talks about how he wrote Tommy knockers, which is like an 800 page book. And he like, doesn't remember writing it. I, yeah. And I remember like, I remember taking that in and being like, wow. Okay. Um, even somebody, even somebody who you like perceive as having uh, peached the uh, reached the apex of their craft, right? Yeah. Um. Didn't quite didn't quite experience the fulfillment. Maybe I thought he did, right? Or th- there was something more that he was looking for in life. I don't know. There was just like the the moral lessons that he and he doesn't even bring that up necessarily. He's not so on the nose about it as I am. That's my own takeaway from it. I just love those lessons. Yeah. 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 Anyways, um, I wanted to, um, thinking about, you know, putting your stuff out there and having people consume it. And do you have, like, what's your relationship with um, the people who might, we might put in the fan bucket? Like, do you, do you, ha- <laughs> do you, can you talk about that a little bit? What that it's like to uh, to have readers and and interact with that community? It's it's hard to address that because there are people who read my writing, but I don't have any idea if I have fans. Um, you know, every once in a while, I'll get an email from someone I don't know. In, in particular, with my columns in the Gazette. Uh, more so than anything else I've ever written, because uh, it's it 
it's a vehicle that can get my writing out there better than any other aspect of, of my career as a writer. And, and I'll get emails from people who I don't know who will say something like, thank you for writing this. This really captured what I was thinking and, and helped me think about it in a new way. And that's, it's, it's flattering and it's wonderful to make that connection. Um, But for every one of those that I get, I get 10 or 12 hate mail letters. So that's probably, I get, you know, for every fan mail I get, I get ones where people literally write insane things to me about, you know, making assumptions about my life that are not true. Yeah. Uh, Calling me every name you can imagine. And, And I occasionally get sort of stalker people who will write me seven or eight emails in a row. Uh, one guy I just kept, and I, I probably shouldn't have kept writing back to him, but I would write back and say, please stop doing this. This is read over what you've written. This is really creepy. And he was writing things like, you know, I'll bet if we met in person and talked about this, I'll bet you'd understand me better. And I'm like, please, you know, reach out to somebody, you know, reach out to somebody yeah. who loves you. I'm not, I'm not a therapist. Uh, I'm not, I'm, you know, these, my email address is not your personal journal. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's really hard because I want to be nice to people, but then they boundaries tell me that. Yeah. And, and so 99% of the time I don't write back on things yeah. like that, but um, so, yeah, weirdly that's, that's my biggest interaction with the community of people who read my writing is trying to assure them that, that I'm not an evil person who wants to kill babies and, uh, give take everything from them and, and give it to people in the inner city who are just going to spend it on drugs and yeah. I'm not yeah. indoctrinating children into hating America and things like that. Yeah, I think that is probably the most reasonable approach um, to to dealing with that. Um, what kind of advice? I mean, I'm sure you get this question a lot. Maybe the dumbest question I ask you tonight. Like, but do you have like general <laughs> advice for aspiring writers? Do you have something in your pocket ready when somebody asks you for advice about being a writer that you pull out and give to them? Like, what is what is that? It's it's nothing complicated. It's just write uh, because I spent years and years and years thinking about writing thinking a lot about writing and doing very little actual writing. Um, and the biggest improvement in my life as a writer is that I've really made the commitment to getting words down on paper and they don't have to be perfect. In fact, you know, like I said, a lot of them are shitty first drafts. Uh, but once you get stuff down on paper, you've got something to work with. And, you know, I spent years thinking, here's a great idea for an essay about my father and my relationship with him. And here's how I could write it. And I never did. And then once I actually got that down on paper and, and kept working with it, that was one of the, the prime pieces of writing that, that opened my life up to doing more actual writing. So whatever you're thinking about writing, start writing it, getting it, get it down on paper and don't worry about publishing, uh, that can happen eventually. Uh, don't worry about other people reading it. Write for yourself. Uh, write to learn about yourself. Write to experience your life in a different way. And get that down on paper in a concrete form. Just like you guys doing this podcast. has. There, there's a concrete artifact that's been created that adds to human culture. 
Same thing with writing. Uh, if you sit down and, and scratch out a couple of paragraphs toward a short story, that's a concrete piece of human culture that exists. Yeah. And that makes the world a more interesting place, whether anybody ever reads it or not. And maybe if you keep scratching and working with it, it eventually becomes something that gets out into the world and other people do read it and you can make those connections. But it's all about, you know, hitting those keys on the laptop or getting that pen moving. And and sometimes I tell people, you know, once you get stuff down on paper, uh, and this actually is something that's in a short story that that's in stumbling through adulthood. Um, imagine if there was some kind of environmental catastrophe or some kind of nuclear confl- conflagration where the world ended right now. And then millions of years from now, aliens came and they found our planet and their archaeologists came down to the planet and they dug around and literally all that they could find that represented human civilization were those notes to that short story you were working on or were the little list you wrote about how you're going to write about your relationship with your father. What would that say about all the humans that have existed forever uh, that don't exist anymore in that speculative universe? Um, And it's a little bit intimidating uh, to think that, the writing you do represents human culture, but Hey, why not? It might. You're a human being. <laughs> yeah. I you mean, represent each, each of us represents humanity just as much as the next person. So yeah, why not? I love that. Thank you for sharing that, John. Um, so just a couple more questions before we um, let you turn into a pumpkin for the evening. <laughs> um, do you, it's do you, great to be up past my bedtime. I, I love this. <laughs> um, we just finished watching um, this, this series on Netflix called the Sandman. And there was this, there's this episode where somebody has captured one of the muses and, and they're holding, holding her prisoner and, and using, using her um, to get, to get ideas Um you know, by force from her. So I'm just curious, thinking about the idea of a muse or, you know, um, some kind of external thing that inspires you. Do you, do you have, do you have a muse? Is it, I'm just curious if you can share that with us. That's a really good question. Um, in so many ways I write for myself, you know, sort of my own muse, because I like to read and so I want to write things that that I would like to read. Um, but I also think about people in my life, both present and in the past. So uh, my father is definitely a muse for me. I think about what he would think of my writing because he actually did read some things that I wrote when I was in high school. And then he passed away when I was in college. So he's definitely someone who I always have in mind when I'm writing sort of in the back of my mind. My wife as well, because, you know, I think my wife is the best person I've ever known. uh, I love that. Bar bar none. And I often write thinking, is she going to like this? Or is she going to learn from this? Or is she going to dislike it, but appreciate it in certain ways? What's she going to think of this character? And one of the best things anybody's ever said about my writing, uh, Susanna Davis, who's a novelist and short story writer, said that the characters in my writing are decent people. And I often write thinking, I I want my wife 
to think about this character in a certain way because I think she's the most decent person I know. And if I'm writing a character who I want to be admirable, I want people to like and appreciate, then I think of her as the muse of like the reader who would appreciate that. If I want the character to be somebody who's considered kind of shallow or yeah. dislikable or the quote unquote villain of the story, I want to write somebody she would dislike. So uh, in many ways, she's she's definitely my muse as well. Yeah, it's interesting to me. I want to just reflect on something um, about that decency of your characters. And sometimes it can come out of left field and surprise you. Um, in, in, in one of the stories in... Um, stumbling through adulthood um there's a story called big little dog right and and it's written from the perspective of a a dog who needs to go outside right and john is showing us his shirt that has a, a, Mm. a heart and a dog inside of it um and um so th- all the while, right? So, and it involves um, the dog's caretaker, one of the dog's caretakers who is sick or like asleep on the couch. And the, the dog reveals to us the, the person's condition eventually. But I kept thinking to myself, something awful is going to happen. This person is going to do something terrible to the dog. Like that's, I kept thinking that in my mind, but he didn't. Like he was totally, he did the totally decent right thing. And, and there's a wonderful twist in the story where the, you know, the dog ends up, you know, saving the day. day. And I I loved it. I absolutely loved that story. Um, But, but there was part of me that kept, like, I was pleasantly surprised that that shoe didn't drop and that person didn't turn out to be a, a creep. (laughs) <laughs> they were decent. Like, they were decent people. I don't know. Why am I surprised by decency? Because you read Stephen King. I don't know. <laughs> a lot of his characters are decent. I'm kidding. It was Stop a joke. It, it was a All right. joke. <laughs> Anyways, I just I wanted to say thank you for 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 thinking about decency. I think and this ties into a lot of the stuff we've talked about. Mm-hmm. I think. Um Yeah. I, I really appreciate that. Uh that's that's one of the best things anybody's ever said about my writing because, you know, so much of literature does have horrible things happen. So much of life, there are horrible things that happen. And, and we get to the point where we're sort of conditioned to expect that. You know, it's it's when I turn on the television and I or when I open up my computer and I I go to my news sources. Yeah. Often, you know, especially since 9-11. But also in in very recent years, because of the Trump administration, I expect bad news. And, you know, when there are things that turn out well, it is nice to be surprised by them. And it's kind of the, the same thing in life. You know, when you meet someone and they turn out to be a good person, it's a wonderful almost surprise. Or when someone you've known forever surprises you by doing something you think is beyond what they were capable of doing. Uh, they surprise you with their decency. That's that's wonderful. And I, I love being able to do that in literature. And sometimes it's conscious. Sometimes I think people are going to expect this character to do something really crappy. Uh, or they're going to expect something horrible to happen to this person. There's, there's one story where uh, the, the main character is sick. And she thinks she's really sick, but maybe she's not. Um, and I, I like 
doing that to have the surprise of things turning out reasonably well. Uh, sometimes it's kind of accidental because I never once thought that anything bad would happen to that right. dog in the story. <laughs> right. But I can see now yeah. that, oh my God, yeah, that could have that could have happened. There are there are some stories where there are some unhappy endings. There are some bad things that happen. And so maybe when that happens every once in a while, it sort of increases the expectation and and the surprise when decent things happen, when decency prevails. So that's I, I thank you for that observation. I really like that. Sure. Yeah, thanks for writing that story. I loved it. Um <laughs> all right. Uh, before we go to our last two questions, was there anything else that we didn't get to? I know we've we've rambled all over the place, but was there anything when you sat down you were dying to talk about that we didn't get to? Well, what I'm working on right now, yeah. which may be one of your upcoming questions, um, like I said, I, you know, I'm really busy and I, I've written a couple more longer short stories like are in this book, but I've been really focused on writing 100 word stories and just as like a little teaser, I'm writing a book that I think the title is going to be uh, just for now. Um, and it's 100, 100 word stories. Mm. Um, and I'm actually thinking uh, of doing a podcast where I have people I know read each story and maybe release two or three a week building up to the book being released. So uh, it's it's creating 10 times more work for myself mm-hmm. than just doing a book would. But I figure, you know, those aliens are going to come someday a million years from now. And, and if they find this, it'd be so much better than just finding the book. So that's what I'm working on now is 100 word stories. I love that. And if you, uh, if you need a volunteer to read a story... I'm Don't available. Ask me. I'm available. <laughs> no, okay, uh, thank I, you. I, I love. I love that. I love that project. It's wonderful. Also, um, let's birth another podcast into the world. Sure. So, <laughs> um, that's awesome, John. Um, good luck with that, and um, I, I look forward to to seeing that um, um, be available to us all. Um, okay. Um, so our last two questions, and I promise these are the last two ones. Um, so uh, what do you like to do for fun and what brings you joy? Um, my dog brings me joy. Uh, my wife and I taking hikes with our dog, uh, taking her out in the yard and just throwing the balls with her. Uh, our dog uh, is 10 years old now. And uh, last year she got cancer oh. and she had a, a big tumor on her intestines and had to have surgery and we didn't know if she was going to make it. And even then they said she only had a year if things were perfect. Well, she's been, it's been almost a year and a half now and she's still doing really great and just, you know, hang out with her brings me joy. Her name is Libby. And I've actually done a couple of books where she's the main character, uh, photography books, but, uh, you know, anything, anything with my wife, uh, bike riding, um, hiking, kayaking, uh, we do a lot of yard work and stuff together. That brings me joy. Uh, reading, good TV. Uh, the Sandman is on our list of things to nice. watch coming up. Uh, we just finished uh, For All Mankind. Oh, it's on my list. It's good? It's really interesting. Okay. It's a little slick, and there are some subplots that are unbelievably dumb, 
but hmm. 95% of the show is really interesting. And if you like shows where they occasionally kill off a main character, surprisingly, mm-hmm. oh my God, they don't fool around. That's awesome. So I'm going to, I'm going to move that up the list. Uh, <laughs> I know how much you love space, uh, space stuff. So, um, well, thank you. Thank you for that recommendation. And thanks for sharing that with us. Um, all right. Last question. This is a little, this is a little deeper. Um, but you can go any way you want with this one. Um, what have you experienced that you can't explain? Hmm. This could be paranormal. It could be, I can't open a pickle jar. It could be something that simple. Like, <laughs> What have I experienced that I can't explain? When I was about 13, I was lying awake in bed and I felt myself rise up and I could literally feel myself go through the covers, the blankets that were over me, rise up and hover above my body for like 10 seconds. And I could hear my parents and my grandmother downstairs talking. And it was like I was hovering above them. Huh. And then I snapped back into my body. Hmm. And I have no idea, what, you know, that could have been just a, a dream. It, I could have died for an instant. I could have been abducted by UFOs. Who knows? I have no idea what it means. And I have never told anyone about it. Oh, thank now. you for sharing. Thank you for sharing that. I love that. I'm going to, I've been, we have several of those types of, um, um, stories that have been shared here. So I, th- I think, I don't think that's the first one where somebody has said they felt like they levitated or astral projected. Yeah. We, we've talked about, yeah, astral we've had a few of those. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you, John. Really appreciate it. Well, we've come to the end. Um, so John, I want to, I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us and, and share so much of yourself. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. This is this is a lot of fun. It's fun to talk with people who really are thoughtful, interesting people who uh, are curious about life, and and I like that. Thanks. Uh, thank you for saying that. What um, is he talking about? Yeah, uh, you. <laughs> that describes you to a T. I see you over there. Don't you worry. Um, all right, listeners, listen. Um, I want to say it again. In the show notes are going to be links where you can find all of John Shire's things, okay? Um, his website that has links to where you can buy his books um, and, and and connect to his other websites. Um, so, and, and, and do buy his books, okay? Um, let's support, let's support a, a, a wonderful writer here who is um, doing so much to bring these characters and stories to the world. Okay. Um, so please do that. Um, also check out our website, please. Um, it's softservepodcast.com. Uh, we have, um, you know, suggested episodes on there. There are spaces where you can go to contact us. If you want to appear on the show, um, please, please reach out to us. Okay. And we'll, 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 We'll t- we'll think about it, right? Right, Stomping Jen. We're gonna Jen? think about it. Yes, we yes, will think, we'll about, think it. about it. Um, what else? Anything else? Connect with us on social media. All the things. All right, you know Share all the things. Share with a friend. All right. Subscribe, download, leave us a review. Yeah, all of those things. 
All right. Um, tell tell Sawtooth how much you love him. Yes, please. Tell tell me how much you love me. I do need that. He needs um, lots of admiration. Yes. All right. Um, John, we're going to go around. We just have a little tradition, a way of saying goodbye. Everybody goes around the circle, says goodbye in whatever way they would love to. So we'll give you the honor of going first. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> this has been wonderful. Good night. I love it. Uh Jennifer, please. Adios. All right. And um, I'm going to say the goodbye the way I always say goodbye. Um, bye now. This world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate. Those who have freedom will understand also its heavy responsibility. That all who are insensitive to the needs of others will learn charity. And that the sources, scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance will be made disappear from the earth. And that in the goodness of time, all peoples will come to live together in a peace guaranteed by the binding force of mutual respect and love. I shall never cease to do what little I can to help the world advance along that road. 